This is Alfred Hitchcock speaking. In the past, I have given you many kinds of suspense pictures, but this time I would like you to see a different one. The difference lies in the fact that this is a true story, every word of it, and yet it contains elements that are stranger than all the fiction that has gone into many of the thrillers that I've made before. Welcome into this special blind spotting edition of Film Spotting. We are not the wrong men. We're Adam and Josh. And on this week's main episode, you will hear my conversation with the esteemed film critic Kent Jones about his new film, Hitchcock Truffaut. It is a documentary about the famous pairing, the book that resulted from the pairing of Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut when they got together, I believe, in 1962 for a week and had those conversations translated and transcribed. And the book that resulted became this seminal piece of film criticism. Inspired by that, we're also going to share our top five film books. But we did promise that we would get to a little blind spotting with Hitchcock, as Josh, there are quite a few of his films we feel like we still need to see. And during my conversation that people will hear with Kent Jones, I asked him, basically, what's a Hitchcock film that people like us who still need to see some of his lesser known but still really good films, what's one title that we should see The Wrong Man was the first title that he mentioned. And the documentary gives it a lot of time. Too. Exactly. It is a fairly prominent part of Hitchcock Truffaut. The movie stars Henry Fonda as a musician, not just a musician, but a bass player, Josh, a stand-up bass player named Manny Balistrero. He's married to Rose, played by Vera Miles. They have two young boys. They are making ends meet. And yet... You know things are going to go downhill when he is talking to his wife early in the movie and says, you know what? I think our lives are pretty good. We're doing okay. And from there, things are about to get a whole lot worse. He is misidentified as a man who held up an insurance company, and then the police come to suspect that he actually is the guy who not only held them up, but a whole bunch of stores within this neighborhood of Jackson Heights in New York City. From there, he's arrested. He goes on trial, and while he's trying to clear his good name, let's say his marriage becomes a little bit fractured. From the conversations Hitchcock and Truffaut had together about the wrong man, I know that Hitchcock pretty much capitulates and says, you know, yeah, this probably isn't one of my best films. I believe the phrase he actually uses is, let's file it under indifferent Hitchcock. (laughs) I want to know if you're indifferent to the wrong man, Josh. And to put it in perspective real quick before you answer, this is a movie that came out in 1956, a couple of years after Rear Window, five years after Strangers on a Train. But this is a few years before Vertigo, North by Northwest, and Psycho, kind of right in the middle of the best part of his career is when this movie came out. Is this minor Hitchcock? And is that really even fair when you are comparing it against films like Rear Window, Vertigo, and Psycho? So do you play the stand-up bass too, or do you stick with the... <laughs> I um, did, actually. Really? I did. I learned a little bit. I played in the orchestra. It always seemed like a fun one to play to me. Um, so minor Hitchcock, this is what's not fair about these master filmmakers, is that when I tend to rank or rate their movies... They sometimes, their really good films get docked because they're not masterpieces. That's Hmm. entirely not fair. This isn't a masterpiece, though. It's very good. Uh, I'm more than indifferent towards it. I would say I'm fond of it. I'm favorably inclined toward the wrong man. It does some things really well. But it's interesting that you place it within his career there because it feels like, uh, you know, there are elements of the wrong man plot in later films, but 
maybe there's more in his earlier films. And there are the elements. Innocent man, mistaken the innocent identity. Man, yeah, certainly. And there are elements of the fractured female psyche in mm-hmm. his earlier films, but more so in his later films. Oh yeah, I would say, especially with something like The Birds and Marnie that would come. And this feels to me psycho too. If psycho, exactly. A lot of shots of Janet Lee are similar to some of the shots of Vera Miles here, for sure. And this stands a little bit awkwardly between those two poles. It didn't quite mesh them in the way that some of his more praised films might. But overall, it still grabs you in the way a great Hitchcock film can. And it will make the cleanest cut viewer, the person who's never had any sort of run in with the police, never caused to look over their shoulder. You start feeling like that. Mm hmm. Pretty soon into this film, yeah, it's you become just as so, paranoid as he does. Oh, it's so tricky in how he does it. it. And right from the start, when Manny is leaving the club to go home, we just see these two, I think they're off-duty policemen in the overcoats walking by him on the sidewalk. And they're not even really trailing him at this point. No. But the way the framing is yeah. set up is it looks like they are. And automatically, you're starting to think, who's watching this guy? And of course, it's the long arm of the law. Mm-hmm. And the law becomes this insidious presence yeah. very actively as the movie goes on. And Manny finds that he's being ramrodded through the justice system in a truly terrifying way. But even at the very beginning with things like lighting and framing, uh, Hitchcock is starting to get under mm. our skin. Well, only because I know the star rating you gave this film on Letterboxd do I know that I like this movie even more than you did. But I agree with everything you said about it, including the fact that, no, I wouldn't put it in Hitchcock's top five or maybe even his top eight. But who really cares at the end of the day? And I'm so glad you brought up that opening scene because I was frantically scribbling my notes here coming into this discussion. And I forgot got to write down one of the things I love right from the beginning, just after that, where you're right, he's just left. We have no reason to suspect him really of any kind of wrongdoing. In fact, we know the movie is called The Wrong Man. So we feel like he's probably innocent and there is going to be some mistake made. But when he walks out and those police are so on him, right behind him walking and the way the camera frames them, you do think, okay, what did they know that he doesn't know and that we don't know and that we're going to find out. And of course, then he heads down the subway and they walk on. But then it gets even better, Josh, because Hitchcock just plants these seeds of doubt and he makes us start to question what we're seeing, just as this character is going to question everything he's seeing and the way everyone else is seeing him. And it comes right after that, where he goes to a diner and he takes out the newspaper And he immediately turns it to the racing form. But then he tries to turn away from it. But then he can't help but go back to it. So you go, okay, he knows there's something bad about this. There's something bad about horse racing. It's immoral or he shouldn't be gambling on it. We start to assume, well, he might have some kind of a problem, right? Maybe he has a problem with the horses. And so he's trying to keep himself away, but he just can't stop the temptation. He has those urges and that dark side comes out. And the way he starts scribbling things down and eventually starts circling things, didn't you immediately go, oh man, tomorrow he's going to take all the money he's got sure. and he's going to go to the track. Something like that. And even more so in the conversation he has that night with his wife when she asks him right. about it. And he's, it, it turns out, my impression is the guy just pretends. That's what he because, says. Because he, he feels like he's got a knack for it and he can pick winners. But then he proves to be supremely responsible yeah. in the use of their funds it's a little and their bit of finances. fantasy what is that a crossword puzzle ah it's a little game i play i pick the winners of tomorrow's races and i write my bets down here on the side see like this and then the next day i figure out how much i've won or lost 
Well, I didn't know you liked horses. It's the arithmetic I like, honey. I guess it's the musician in me. You know, musicians are always fascinated by mathematics. They can't read, but they can figure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm, it'd be nice if you could win us about $300. In my experience, I always pay for what I get. We won't win any 300 we'll borrow it. He seems like, a, you know, almost this sad sack guy who's so responsible in We're judging life. him. Hitchcock <laughs> well, right. makes us judge well, him, and I love that. And because his behavior implies what you're talking about, a little bit of guilt. And I think that comes full flower in the montage where the police have picked him up at this point. Mm -hmm. And this absolutely insane process of taking him from one of the stores that has been robbed to the next and making him walk to the back of the store and come out so that the proprietor can identify them mm -hmm. or supposedly not identify them. And but of course, who's, they, who's going to not identify him at that they point? Also, you're right. They assume he's guilty because why else would the police put him in front of them? And how does he carry himself? Right. This is a guy who... We've been told everything we've been told is innocent. He acts as if he knows he's innocent, but his face changes mm -hmm. when he's forced to enact the part of the criminal. And I think yeah. that's maybe the best moment for Fonda, too, who, you know, we regard generally as this upright figure from something like 12 Angry Men. And I think that's why we probably really do believe him when he's telling his wife that it's just this mm -hmm. fantasy game he plays because it's part of Fonda's persona. But did any part of you during that montage think, well, even given the title, think like, well, he's just he gets so shifty. He gets so shifty. Those, and so nervous. And well, they keep telling him that if you are innocent, you have nothing to fear. But he the is pressure. afraid. How about the pressure and, of that? Yeah, the pressure of that. And I think that I felt it and I, I felt like it was legitimate on his part. I, it wasn't something I actually did hold against him. But I do love how we have to start questioning things right away. And it comes back to the way the camera is used. And that's what I really did respond to because it almost is exclusively photographed using point-of-view shots. If you think about it, the only shots we really get of Manny objectively are really there just to set up what he's ultimately looking at. So we see him walk in the house, but only so we can see him open the door, and then what does he do immediately? He looks at his kids, and then he goes into his room, and he looks at his wife. And even the way he opens the door, he peeks around the door a little bit. So Hitchcock kind of makes us wonder what he's peeking at. It's all about kind of what's in our imagination and what we think that he might be seeing. And the whole plot, as we have said, is predicated on seeing, in this case, seeing falsely. All of these people are sure that that face is the face that they remember. My favorite scene in the movie, I think what Hitchcock really does so brilliantly, is he doesn't just employ the point of view for a sort of visceral effect and just to add to our sense of suspense or a sense of paranoia or even just to put us in his shoes. But it's for thematic effect, too. And the sequence that I love is the one in the courtroom where he is finally on trial. His lawyer, played by Anthony Quayle, who seems like a very upstanding man and maybe a good lawyer, but says he's not that experienced when it comes to uh, criminal trials. And that certainly shows in the worst cross-examining you've ever seen in a film. And it's so bad that everybody in the courtroom becomes completely taken out of the process for a moment. And the way Hitchcock does it is he shows Henry Fonda, he shows Manny sitting there, but then he shows us exactly what he's looking at moment to moment. So it's from Manny's perspective that we see the district attorney and his assistant laughing about something, sharing a secret, kind of telling a joke. They're barely even paying attention to what's going on. He looks at the jurors. I think one woman is sort of looking at her nails or something. People in the courtroom behind him aren't paying attention anymore. Everybody has zoned out. The system doesn't care at that point, Indeed. if it ever did. And so you've got a man whose entire life, his freedom, is on the line here. 
And all of these disinterested people are just going about their days basically as normal. They're not carrying any burden at all while the weight of the world is crushing poor Manny. Maybe it's something I think about because, and I don't know if I've mentioned this over the years on the show before, but my favorite poem and maybe my favorite painting, W.H. Auden's poem, Musée des Beaux-Arts, which is about looking at Peter Bruegel's painting, The Fall of Icarus. And in it, you can barely see Icarus. It's all about everybody else on the ship, the sailors, the farmer. Everybody's just going about their day, but you see Icarus's leg just coming out of the water. So this great tragedy, this momentous occurrence, a a boy has lost his life. Everybody else is pretty much indifferent to it. And that's what we see in this courtroom scene. And it actually mirrors a scene just like it earlier in the film when he's first arrested, where we actually do see him looking at the policeman, really studying and taking them in, looking at the world around him as it's going by. And that point of view just sets up our identification with Manny throughout this whole film. The point of view is especially pointed in the jail scenes when he's looking at the bars of his cell. I mean, Hitchcock spends a lot of time rooting things in specific details to make us, my impression is that He's trying to emphasize this isn't a dream. This has really happened to this Mm -hmm. guy. So he's seen the bars of his jail cell. He sees and hears the click of the handcuffs going on his wrist. Yeah, the sound is really— Something he never would have imagined Mm -hmm. in his life. But there are also those non—when we do get away from that point of view, they can be in pretty fantastic flourishes. And I'm thinking of another jail cell shot where Manny finally falls back. It kind of sinks in finally. He's almost in denial for much of the film, disbelief that this is happening to him. But then when it hits him, he falls back against the wall of the jail cell and the camera starts doing this. Uh, it's it's I can a describe circular it as motion. A, yeah, yeah. A, yeah, it's like vertical. It's a vertical circle. And, um, and the whole screen starts essentially spinning. And then we get the Bernard Herrmann score, which at this point is almost a screen. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to take. Like you want out of that scene. And and so there's just an interesting push but and pull like between. did you like that? Did you really? Because well, that's for what me, I'm, that's what I was going to ask you. That felt like it felt a little out, too ostentatious. It for felt me. out mm-hmm. of sync with what the rest of the film yeah. was doing. I think and, it breaks that point of view to the point where it's actually not that effective. Well, and I would say that's the same issue I had with the Vera Miles subplot, hmm. in that it's such it's not necessarily a bad form of storytelling. But it's such a distinct break from what we've been experiencing with Manny. And it also breaks that point of view that you're talking Mm -hmm. about, where we're sent to her story and her experience. And it's I don't know if it's exactly halfway through the film, but it spends quite a bit of time with her, too. Mm -hmm. It almost gives itself over to her. And again, here we have this much more heightened, almost hysterical experience of what's happening to him, to their family from Miles' perspective. I'll say I think Miles is great. Yeah, she is. The transition she makes from this really supportive, understanding, proactive wife. Mm -hmm. uh, I love their early scenes together where it's this, you know, couple struggling somewhat financially, but they're going to figure it out. And she's a very strong presence in there. Equally strong when she cracks Mm -hmm. and starts adapting this more heightened Hitchcock female performance, but there's just there's just a a jarring there between the two threads. I agree that it's jarring. And I think that ultimately it's hard not to hold it against this film that her descent happens a little too abruptly. And I think also the way the trial is ultimately resolved happens a little bit too abruptly after all the pains that are taken 
to document this process. You talk about the sounds of the handcuffs and the way he eyes the hallway as he's going to his cell. And what about the fact that we even watch him do the fingerprint? We see that, but it really takes its time with that. And the fact that we even see him clean off his hands when it's done, hanging up his coat, all those details. And then for those larger plot points to happen so quickly the way they do is a little bit jarring to a negative effect. I'll disagree with you, though, a little bit on the overall impact that has on the movie. It made me appreciate the movie even more, and there's two reasons. One is because I simply liked the surprise of it. In retrospect, you can go back and watch those early scenes, knowing what you know about Vera Miles' character, and I think start to see those little cracks of genuine dread and genuine fear and the fact that she's really reluctantly buying what Manny is selling her about how things are going to turn out okay for them. But that's only in retrospect. I was surprised by it, though. I just like the surprise of a movie that says this is what the movie is. It's a movie about this guy, mistaken identity. We're going to show you the whole process. We're going to show the trial. Ultimately, it's going to get resolved one way or the other. That's the course I thought I was on. And for it then to take a turn where you realize that no matter how this is ultimately resolved for him, whether he gets his freedom back or not, it's taken its toll in a way that they may not be able to overcome. And I like that. And I just like, I guess, the fact that based on Hitchcock, it just seems so appropriate, the other Hitchcock films that I've seen, that only he would take this true story. And it is a true story. He tells us that before the movie begins. And it's this procedural, as we've talked about, and he makes it so existentially dreadful. The movie really does become the Book of Job meets Kafka's The Trial. She is yeah, there's so a lot of Kafka here. concerned about the fact that they may never be able to truly overcome the system. The system becomes something a whole lot larger than just the criminal justice system or just talking about the police. And maybe it's appropriate that the rosary plays a part in this movie. Jesus ultimately ends up playing a part in this movie and praying or not praying. And it's probably not by accident that I did start to think about Vera Miles' lament within the framework of original sin, right? It seems as if Hitchcock is at least playing with that a little bit, that that no matter how hard you try, you're guilty. And she succumbs to that. And whether it's all kind of movie fun or not, it weighed on me. It weighed on me watching it like it weighed on these characters. Rose, the last few days, you've, you haven't seemed to care what happens to me at the trial. Don't you see? It doesn't do any good to care. No matter what you do, they've got it fixed so that it goes against you. No matter how innocent you are or how hard you try, they'll find you guilty. So the praying scene is another instance of a visual flourish, right. a major that flourish. That I didn't love that moment. It's, yeah. it's so expertly done. You have to appreciate how they pulled it off. Right. Essentially, Manny is praying to the portrait of Jesus to just... Get out of yeah, it. To it's give like them a, a miracle. ditch effort mm-hmm. at this point because religion hasn't played that much of a role in the film up to this point. There's maybe an oblique reference here or there. And as we look at Manny's face, there's this dissolve, and we see a man walking into that dissolve. And he, of course, is the the right man. man. And he comes, what's so ingenious about it is how he walks right into the frame to match Manny's face. So great 
visual accomplishment, but again, it's a little bit of that how things are neatly resolved. Like it's a it's yeah. it is a literal hail mary, it and is, it, yeah. it's you know saves him, saves the movie, and, and so I was torn there too, appreciating the artistry, but wondering how it worked thematically. And I think it's it's a similar thing with the Vera Miles subplot. Mm-hmm. You know, it's undoubtedly daring that he goes that way, and it it's maybe where you can see a hint of this is where I really like to be this is the movie i maybe really i mean he's definitely had the power to make whatever yeah, he movie ultimately he wanted may be burdened point. by the true story he's trying perhaps to tell. and it yeah, feels maybe. it feels a little bit like that and the other thing too is that you know the daringness is a very small thing but it's the final thing so it has a lot of impact the daringness is absolutely undercut by the postscript so undercut i mean basically postscripts really are just generally bad ideas and they're really bad ideas when you've made a movie that does culminate in such, as I put it, an existentially dreadful way. Yeah, you undercut all that. To force the happy ending is bad enough. Anytime a happy ending is forced, it's bad. But when it's forced in the form of a couple sentences of text, <laughs> right. you really can't do it worse. And it undercuts. I wish there was a stronger word than undercut because it just is a stomach punch. I it, wish I'd stopped the It took the, the wind out of me. I know. It could have ended right before it uh-huh. without it and I probably would have given this movie another half star because it's just so good for me up to that point and it does undo a little bit of that goodwill at the end unfortunately. Another one of those, of course, artistic flourishes that I appreciate but I'm not sure it really served the story that much is the way the shadow of the jail cell hits him there's a bar maybe where the light is shining through and it splits him in half Mm -hmm. and then later when he is in a confrontation with vera miles he's actually struck in the mirror shatters and it shatters in exactly the same spot it it cuts him right in the middle you get those kind of moments but for me the best visual touches are not only all the point of view and the real subtlety of those shots but the use of high angle shots the way especially when he's in the police station It just feels, again, like this weight. The whole world is coming down on him where the policemen are standing over the top of him often, but the camera puts us in that position of judgment as well. And my favorite moment in the jail scene, I wonder if you really caught this or it impacted you at all. It's before that whole circular vertigo type of thing. It's where this super polite guy, this guy who up to this point has been pretty happy-go-lucky, very optimistic— He clearly goes along with what the police are asking him to do because he hasn't done anything wrong and they're being sort of nice about it. So he'll just play ball in that cell. He clenches his fists Mm -hmm. together and it's that Hitchcock moment of angst and that darkness that we haven't seen in him at all and really don't see for the most part after that either. But in that moment, he has to repress a real rage that is heightened by the fact, as I said, that he hasn't expressed it at all before. So you wonder what's really lurking underneath there. I love that moment. Yeah, and he still essentially keeps it in there, too. He does. When he does express something, going back to the interrogation moment with a high angle, Mm -hmm. we cut to that high angle after Manny gives one of his louder protests. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say he shouts, but he starts to get a little impatient with the cops and loudly says something and the camera cuts to that high angle. Like if if he's going to start causing trouble, we're going to back away from this guy. Like, Mm -hmm. whoa, you know, calm down, buddy. And again, Hitchcock is almost putting us in the position of the police at that point, Mm -hmm. making us perhaps more suspicious of him. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's a Hitchcock film because you can sense from the very beginning 
that you're being messed with. And sure. to that, to you know, for for that measurement, it stands up as as a really strong Hitchcock picture. Well, more Hitchcock coming, of course, in that conversation with Kent Jones and our top five film books. That's it for this edition of Blind Spotting. If you have any thoughts about it, we'd love to get your feedback on this movie, Hitchcock in general. Feedback at filmspotting.net, or if you just have strong feelings one way or another about doing these sort of separate blind spotting episodes, making them available as their own podcasts, you can share that feedback too. For Film Spotting, I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Thanks for listening. Am I being accused of something? Who says I'm a hold-up man or look like one? And what hold-up are you talking about? Don't I have a right to know? 